Blog Talk Radio. Good morning out there in Blog Talk Radio land and those of you tuning in from Rainbow Soul and iTunes and all the different ways that you can tune in here to Off the Shelf Radio. So I want to wish you a good Saturday morning on this October 22nd. The temperatures are really nice here in the Atlanta, Georgia area. It was warmer earlier in the week, and you can see the leaves changing colors and just enjoying the the autumn season. And I hope you're off to a, a wonderful Saturday. For those of you who have friends and you tune in to Off the Shelf regularly, I always like to let you know there's still time. And if you people come in to the show midstream and, oh, my God, I missed the early part after the show streams, you can always check it out in the archives. But to dial in, if you want to let a friend or somebody know, all they have to do is dial 347 347- Nine nine four three four nine zero, and again that's three four seven nine nine four three four nine zero. And we have a fabulous author on deck for you here at Off the Shelf, and you don't want to miss today's show. Whether you're a writer, and she shares some tips with you on how to improve your writing or better develop characters that readers connect with. I love her her new novel, her debut novel. And I think you will enjoy and learn a lot from her as well as being entertained. But before I introduce today's guest, I want to leave a thought a thought with you. And this thought is from Aldous Huxley, and it is, there is only one corner of the universe you can be certain of improving, and that's your own self. How often do we think the world would be better if other people changed? There is only one corner of the universe you can be certain of improving. You can be absolutely certain of improving, and that's your own self. Again, that's Aldous Huxley. Next, listeners, I've asked this question more than once, but I'm curious. I love mysteries. You know, when I was a little girl, it was Agatha Christie, and then there are other other, um, uh, writers and TV shows where, uh, the Columbo was one. You try to figure out, okay, who did it? Who did it? And Columbo, I love that show. If you love mystery and you value relationships, not only a relationship between a man and a woman, but in Love Forever Me, there is a very complicated relationship between a father and a son. Now, when you think of the father, you often think he's absentee. This isn't the case. He's the one who's there for his son. But the father also has untreated alcoholism. You, if you, the, the way they change each other through this story and the way the, the four friends that Raymond Clark, he's a, he's a track and field standout and he's an academic standout. He earns him a scholarship to a university in Pennsylvania, which is where he meets his soulmate, Brenda. But the friendships he has with these four men that come from all over different backgrounds you see how we all shape each other. We often don't think of our lives that way. And then what What do the people in our lives, what's the end result of our life? If you value relationships, and I mean in different levels and different types of relationships, and you also like a mystery because there's a murder mystery tucked in Love for Over Me, I encourage you to get a copy of Love for Over Me. It's in ebook and print format. You can get it at ebook it dot com, Barnes and no- Barnes and Noble, Amazon dot com, Walmart is in the library. If you don't see it on the shelf, just tell a clerk I, I want to order a copy of Love for Over Me by Denise Turney, 
and they can order a copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. So I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me today, not just telling yourself you're going to do it, but not getting around to it so you can enjoy this story. And please let me know how you enjoy Love Pour Over Me. And now I want to introduce to you today's special off-the-shelf guest. And I was telling her we have had some guests come on the show that have gone on to do things that have, I, I tell you, one of our guests who's been on twice, she was uh, just sent me a clip with, uh, I think it's Jack Canfield, Canfield. He started the Chicken Soup for the Soul. But she does a lot of motivational speaking as well. She's really gone on. Another guest has her own, well, two of our guests have their own television uh, shows. And one has appeared on, uh, used to appear on CNN regularly and now on TV One. That's just, those are just the ones I know of. So I'm, 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 I'm just so honored every time our guests come on. I don't know what. We've had New York Times bestselling authors on off the shelf. So this morning we are just delighted to have with us Michelle Cox. Now, Michelle has a bachelor's in English literature, and she is the author of the book, A Girl Like You, and I like that title. She writes two blogs, and the titles of her blogs are How to Get Your Book Published and 7,000 Easy Steps. we got to ask her about that. And Novel Notes of Local Lore, and you can check Michelle out online, and I encourage you to hop over and visit her website now, even as you listen to her feature interview, and her website is MichelleCoxArthur.com, and I'll spell it. It's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-C-O-X-A-U-T-H-O-R.com. I'm going to spell it the way it sounds, MichelleCoxArthur.com, and again, that's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-C-O-X-A-U-T-H-O-R.com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Michelle. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, and I hope people go over to your website because your website, as soon as I went to it, the design of it, it took me back to uh, Chicago in the era, time when your book is set. Whoever designed your site did an awesome job. This wasn't a question that I had during the research meant to ask you, but did you design it? How involved were you in the design of your site? It, you come, it, I, I got a, came away with a a certain feeling about the story just from the uh, the website. Well, thank you. You, um, you know, it, I, I contributed, let's put it that way. Um, I have a publicist, uh, Book Sparks, and they're out of Arizona. And they contracted a company called Liquid Design to come up with the website for me. Um, and... Originally, uh, they had a lot of more darker images um, from Chicago at that time period, and I kept trying to tell them, you know, it's really not that kind of a story. And so then I got more involved in choosing the images, and we sort of both worked together to to produce it. So, yeah, I'm really happy with it. Thank you. Yeah, it, it very well done. Now, the first two questions are th- questions I ask every guest on Off the Shelf, just so our listeners can get a little backstory on our uh-huh. guests. So I wanted to ask you, before we launch into the questions, can you tell our Off the Shelf listeners what where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I grew up in 
a very small town called East Dubuque, Illinois, and it's right on the corner of where Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa meet. So we are just across the the Mississippi River from Dubuque. And um, I grew up on a farm. Um, It was my great-grandparents' farm, and then my grandparents and my dad took it over. But he also, you know, spent his life working uh, at in a factory for John Deere for, you know, over 30 years as well. So he was a very hard worker, and I think I got a lot of my work ethic from him. Um, so, yeah, it was a small town life, really, for me. I Then I got a scholarship to um, an all-women's college in Chicago. So I went, and, um, you know, I never left. <laughs> so there you go. Okay, okay. So you you came up in Illinois as... Our listeners um, will learn where your, where your book is set. Now, when you were a kid, you grew up on a farm. When you uh-huh. were a child, uh, what did, what what did you dream of becoming? It's, this question is always a love to answer. Some of our guests <laughs> actually, they what they became is what they always wanted to be, and some are so far away from what they dreamed <laughs> of being as a kid. What what did you dream of becoming when you were a kid? You know, I think I always kind of wanted to be a writer, um, but I, I, especially as I got older into high school, I started to really doubt um, that I was good enough. But and I was also always very interested in science, and so I kind of had these two crazy ideas of of wanting to either be a writer or wanting to be a doctor. And to me, it seemed an easier path. <laughs> to be a doctor. So I um, went to college with that in mind, and I got to about my sophomore year when I realized, um, you know, this just isn't really for me. Um, I was taking a Victorian lit class at the same time just to fulfill an an elective, and um, I realized, you know, this is really where where my passion is. So I said, you know, I'm I'm going to do it, and so I switched, and became an English major. Oh my goodness! And yeah. and, and, and we've had a lot of several people who have done that. Good for you. Good for you. Um, I was going to ask you: Did you major in English lit because you wanted to be a teacher? Did you take your degree and teach at either the secondary or post-secondary level, or was it? you pursued English literature because you wanted uh, to have a stronger base as a novelist? You know, I I didn't really. I mean, I I majored in English. It doesn't really make sense because I just, I loved reading so much. And I thought, wow, I, you know, it's great that you could major in reading books. So uh, that's where really it, it, it came from. I didn't really have a desire to teach. I thought maybe, um, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. Uh, so when I got out, <laughs> of course, there's not very many options for an English major who doesn't teach. I ended up actually working at a graphics company, which had nothing to do with my degree. And then from there, I, I went into social service um, at a nursing home, which you know is kind of re- relates back in the end to, to the book and all the blog and all of that kind of stuff. But um, you know, I was still kind of afraid to be a writer, and I had a, a fabulous professor 
in college, and she said, you know, none of you should even think about writing a novel until you're at least 40. <laughs> We're like, oh, my wow. gosh, you're kidding. And she said, no, you, you don't have enough life experience until you're at least 40. So I kind of thought, well, I've got time. <laughs> so I Isn't shelved that, that idea until, uh, you know, until very recently. That is so, you know what, somebody else told me that, and and I, I don't, do you agree with that? I'm, I, I don't, I don't, there are writers, you've got writers of, in their 20s and 30s writing great, great work. I, I don't know where that thought comes from. Because are you know, stories, I, most Yeah, you know, I, understand. I, I think that's true, um, that there are a lot of young writers who are very talented and produce, you know, exceptional books so I don't think it's it's true across the board but I do understand what she was saying um I think if I had tried to write first coming out of college it would have been a disaster um because I really didn't have enough life experience and you know I may maybe could have told a clever story but I don't know if I could have really um you know hit all the nuances or you know had the same emotional depth Yeah, I guess that one for me is a little, because somebody told me that. Before we go into writing about, I mean, talking about your book, I had to to ask you this, something you said. Why were you afraid? Is that why you were afraid to pursue writing? You you said you, like, you did social services work. Then you did the, um, you tried to do, going after becoming a doctor, and you said that wasn't a fit. What scared you about being a writer, did you think you wouldn't make enough money from it? Did you did you think you wouldn't be uh, have the t- talent to sell enough books? What what was it about it that scared you? You know, I think yeah, I think it was a fear that you know I wasn't a, a talented enough writer that I didn't have what it took. Um, you know, that it it in college or high school that that seemed so lofty to me it just seemed like something that would 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 be so far out of reach that it would require so much um so much wherewithal so much intelligence and um you know i just didn't just didn't know if i if i had what it took to to produce something you know because i'm i'm kind of a perfectionist so i won't attempt something unless i am pretty sure that i can succeed and do it well and if I if I really weigh it up and I don't think that that that's the outcome, then I won't attempt it. So you know, there's obviously a, <laughs> a lot of pluses and minuses there, but you know that's that's the case with kind of how I work. So um, yeah, I think I was afraid that I couldn't um, I couldn't live up wow. to my own expectation. Wow! And I have to tell you, you're just the openings of your your novel, the parts I've read, and then, again, the website, which I encourage our listeners to visit. I got the total opposite from you. I walked away, and, again, we've gone into our 13th year of interview, many people in magazines and radio, and I walked away saying she is an incredible talent. Isn't that amazing uh-huh. we, how we think something about ourselves <laughs> and somebody else thinks just the opposite? So, so, so to, to your book, Michelle, why did you set – a girl like you in Chicago in 1935. Well, um, that's a great question. Um, 
As I sort of, uh, you know, mentioned before, I, I had this job in social service in a nursing home on Chicago's northwest side. So I actually, originally I was the admissions director, but I, I don't think I was a hard enough sell. <laughs> so that was, that was my job, you know, is to fill beds, and I wasn't very good at it. Um, I was more concerned with what happened to them after they got there. And, you know, I was going around finding lost sweaters and sitting with people and playing bingo with them. And that, that wasn't really my job. So um, they moved me into social service, which was, you know, a perfect fit for me. And um, I started documenting all of these um, people's histories. And a lot of the stories, um, you know, most of those people were born in like 1910, 1900. So, you know, the the highlight of their lives were, you know, unfolding in the 30s and 40s. And really my favorite, one of my favorite eras is the 40s. But um, I based A Girl Like You on a little, roughly on one particular woman's story. And um, she was in real life, worked at the Chicago World's Fair and in the 30s, and she worked as a Dutch girl. So every day she had to dress up in a Dutch girl costume and um, pass out flyers. And I just thought that that was such a unique detail, and she had so many unique jobs through her life that I really wanted to include. So I thought, you know what, I'm I'm just going to set it a decade earlier than I would usually like and put it in the 30s. So I think it worked. And this is Henry. So she, so Henrietta von Harmon, for our listeners, she's based on a real life woman. She a, is part, um, part of her. Part of her story is. I mean, obviously, um, she the the real person wasn't involved in a murder and didn't meet the aloof and tech, detective and all of that. But some of the some of the things in the book um, that I give Henrietta are really from this this person. Wow. Yeah, she had a fascinating story. I mean, she was larger than life. She was like 81 when I met her in the early 90s, and she um, she just had, still had a real spark to her. And she used to go around telling me all about her life, and she used to say, you know, once upon a time I had a man-stopping body and a personality to go with it. <laughs> Wow, oh. it's the stuff novels are made of. It's excellent. Well, you know what? And that I appreciate you sharing that, Michelle, because it's a reminder to don't dismiss anyone Cause, because because <gasps> everybody no. has everybody has a story. But can you give us a little bit more on Henrietta? Tell us where she's from, and what what is she doing in Chicago? In, in 1935, was she born in the city, or did she did something bring her to the city? Well, are you talking about the real the person that she's based on, or the no, character? No, the character in the in the in a in, in a girl like you. Okay, so the character of Henrietta, she um, she's been born in Chicago. Um, uh, she. Her father, so this happens to be really before the book opens. Um, it's the Great Depression. Her father has killed himself because he's lost his job. Oh. And um, he's left behind a sort of a depressed 
wife and eight children who now have to make their way in the world. And Henrietta is the oldest, so she, a lot of the burden falls on her. So she has a lot of pressure to, um, you know, to bring in money. And they're very, very poor. But while her father was alive, they were allowed to live in the company housing for Schwinn Bicycles, which is where he worked. And, um, you know, when he dies, they have to move out to an even smaller, more terrible place. So that's, you know, that's the setup. Uh, so, and I do remember, and I'm, I'm going back for our listeners if they've ever seen the, the book or the movie Seabiscuit or the book, and that was so well written, that book, Seabiscuit. Mm. That's what happens to the guy who buys Seabiscuit and the horse trainer. The horse trainer always had a struggling life. I don't want to start talking about Seabiscuit. But the, the <laughs> jockey, when the, when the great, dep- you see how one day they're toasting champagne, the next morning the papers hit the the porches and everything has changed. So I, they did show how bikes were really, really big for a while. And then I'm thinking now even about the um, the Wright brothers. That's how they got the concept for airplane bikes. The bikes were really, really big and horses, bikes. And then when the cars came along, thinking about Henrietta's father in A Girl Like You, that was more change. Just like we're undergoing change in the world now. Everybody doesn't mm. deal so well with change like Henrietta's father didn't. Although it's a given. It's a given. We get comfortable, and then when we feel the ground shifting, we like, oh, God, what's going on? Now, her, yeah. Henrietta, she seems to have had a very rough childhood. Do you go into any detail in the story to the reader so they feel what she felt uh, when her family was really struggling. Um, yeah, I mean, you don't. Um, I don't go too far back into her childhood because it it, it clips along pretty fast. Um, you get to the to the mystery pretty quickly, but um, I do think that I. I mean, um, I do think I put in a lot of detail, and that's one of the things that um, readers. Um, say to me or write to me very often saying that they there was a lot of uh, period detail they really felt like they were there they felt like it almost like they were watching a movie while they were um reading and they really uh could kind of sense the poverty and the and you know what life was like for her I have to ask you this for our listeners, uh, giving them more and more of a picture of a girl like you. Did Henrietta, did she Did she live to see the heydays? Again, they say with the Great Depression, like the Great Recession, which we lived through, and I was actually working in a financial services firm, so I was right up on it. You, you It looked like everything was the top of the world, and then in a week it's like you, you're like, oh, my God, what's happening? Did she get to see the heydays prior to the Great Depression, given some contrast to even her own thought? Uh, did she get to, to experience those heydays prior to the start of the Great Depression as a child, times when things were really good? Not, no, not really, because, um, you know, it, it, certainly for her they were better when her her father was alive and you know before the depression but um they were always poor they were part of the working poor so it it wasn't quite as bleak as you know 
after when the depression hit, but certainly wasn't a heyday, you know, for them. Okay. Now, what is to introduce us to Mr. Clive Howard? What does Clive Howard do? Well, he is the um, he is the detective that shows up um, once the murder has occurred, and he. Um, it, I'll just give you a, a little bit of background. Is um, Henrietta's working when the book opens um, at a corner tavern called Poor Pete's, and she's working as a 26 girl, which is a real um, occupation back in that time. It was a real dice game that that was played in taverns and sometimes in cigar stores. And they would throw dice, and if you scored a perfect 26, you got a free drink on the house. And then they would employ girls to, um, you know, go around and keep score and encourage men to, you know, to buy more drinks. So she was she was doing this for a while, and again, that was really based on this real woman's life. She she really did do that. That's how I got the idea. But she's not making enough, so her friend encourages her to quit the job at the tavern and um, join her at one of the dance halls to be a taxi dancer. Um, so she's very hesitant to do that because she thinks that it's not quite respectable. Um, what, I'm sorry, what is a taxi dancer? A taxi dancer um, was also a real, was a real occupation that this, you know, old woman in the nursing home actually had this job too. Um Men would pay ten cents a dance to dance with a pretty girl at a dance hall. So um, there's all sorts of you know deeper implications there. You know uh, some more shady establishments. You know it was uh, equated with prostitution, and you know you never quite knew what was happening. But um, even the the best dance halls like the Aragon and all of those had taxi dancers. So you had, you know, a big extreme. So Henrietta is hesitant to to do this sort of thing, but she knows that she can make more money, so she agrees to do it. And then soon after she gets established at this place called the Promenade, uh, the dance hall matron turns up murdered. And that's really where the story really starts. And, um, and Clive Howard comes on the scene as the inspector, and he quickly sizes up the situation, and he he realizes that because Henrietta is so beautiful, which is I also copied from this woman. I, she was apparently, you know, the, had the man's slapping body. So I made Henrietta very beautiful, and um, he sees this, and he tries to talk her into going undercover for him on a a, a deeper, darker case. Oh, a different case. Right. He suspects there might be a connection, but he doesn't necessarily tell Henrietta that. And then it all starts to, you know, unravel, and they get deeper and deeper into it and it gets more dangerous and lots of things happen. Wow. (laughs) Listen to you. Without giving the story away, you just hook, you hook. That's a hook. That was the hook. Now, what, what drew Clive? Would you? We know a little bit more about Henrietta. We, you know, as a writer, they say it's not the plot, it's not the setting. They are important, but 
but the reader has to care about the characters. They have to care about what happens to them, or you, they, they, they're not going to be that into the story. Would you, to, to, to help off-the-shelf listeners feel more like they know Clive and Henrietta, would you Clive to his profession? We know he's a detective. What drew him to his profession, and what's what's Clive's personality about? Because I've mentioned Columbo. Is he kind of like a Columbo? Is he more hard-hitting? What's his personality like, and why did he pick uh, what drew him to that profession? You know, oh, um, it, that's a good question. Um, he uh, he's a sort of an aloof uh, character. He's he's um, much older than Henrietta. Henrietta is about eighteen, nineteen in the story, and he's thirty-five. And he has been wow. through. Yeah, he's been through World War One. He was a captain in the war, and he was injured, and. Um, he comes back and he feels like this is his way of finding some sort of justice in the world is to be, you know, a detective and, you know, try to right the wrongs. But he also is a little bit um, standoffish, uh, a little bit aloof. And so you, the reader sympathizes with him, but they are also – you know, a little suspicious, and they're, you know, wondering what are his intentions with Henrietta. You know, you you don't really know what's driving him. Um, you do find out a little bit more about him and what, what really makes him tick all the more, but that's later in the story, and I don't, don't want to give that away. But I will say that in book two of the series, which is coming out in April, uh, you find out a lot about Clive, and um, lots and lots of things make sense. So he's a very closed-off guy. Does he have uh, – is, is, does Henrietta become, without giving the story away, again, if you can't answer it, then don't, does she become the uh, like the closest person he's with? Is he one of these guys who is so caught up in his job and he's maybe afraid a lot of people, a lot of us are actually afraid of love. We don't trust each other. Is he, like, so aloof he stays to himself so that he really doesn't have friends? And maybe is he close to his family? Is he so aloof that he just, <clears throat> is he that guy in the apartment who feeds his cat and then does his detective work <laughs> and that's about like, all he does? Is he that you know he what? doesn't really Pretty... talk to his neighbors or Pretty much. I mean, you don't, you don't know, a, you don't get a lot. From him, um, most of his friends died in the war. Um, You don't really hear about his family. That kind of remains a mystery. Um, You get the sense um, that he, yeah, he's pretty much a loner. And when Henrietta comes into his life, he's very alarmed by what he is starting to feel for her. And he... um, this r- really unsettles him. So you you know he he's starting to feel something perhaps for her, but he um, he feels like it's inappropriate because he's you know yeah, an he's inspector a lot older and he, he and she's he's a lot older, so he doesn't know what to do with these feelings. Uh, how do they again without giving it away with characters? You have things about characters that they get along with each other in certain areas, just like we do as people. 
and they help each other. And then there's certain ways where we just rub each other. It seems the wrong way. And it's just you just see people bumping into each other in these same areas. With Henrietta and Clive, do they have those spots where they work well together in certain areas? He's put her on this other case, uh, and so they have to work together. Do they are there are there ways they complement each other in ways that they just clash and clash and clash? Um, no, they don't really clash so much. Um, they have a limited, um, they do work together, but they, they don't spend a lot of time in each other's company because he doesn't want to blow her cover. So, um, the pe- person he's tracking, if, if he's seen, then you know, the, the the criminal is going to know. So Clive has to really be um, behind the scenes. So they don't meet up a lot. It's very infrequent. And um, he tries very hard to maintain a distance, but he does let his kindness, you know, show through for her because she has so many worries and concerns about her family, and he starts to be drawn in by that. Um she, on the other hand, um, you know, I think that she is also kind of struggling with, you know, is he more like a father figure or is he going to be more of a romantic figure? And she, he um, reminds her a lot of her father, and so that sort of confuses her in her mind because she so wants to please him. And she's not really quite sure why, like why should she care if he succeeds on this case or not, so... Wow, you've got a lot of interesting things going on. And then also with her father committing suicide and that the change and is in the depression and she's she's young. Oh my gosh, she's very young and impressionable. You've got a lot going on where the reader would wonder how's this gonna turn out. And I could tell you I haven't read the the novel yet, but I'm pulling for Henrietta of of, of, <laughs> of the characters we've discussed so far. But Thanks. now I want to introduce off-the-shelf listeners to another character in the book. A girl, uh, uh, um, and and the next character I want to introduce them to is if you could tell us about Stanley from A Girl Like You. Uh, if you could tell us about Stanley and how old is Stanley? We know you say Henrietta's like 18. Clive is 35. He's been through World War One. Most of his friends passed in the war, and he's kind of a loner. But it introduce us to Stanley. How old is Stanley, and what's Henrietta and uh, Stanley's relationship like? Well, that's a great question. I was going to try to go into that because you said, you know, there's a lot going on with Clive and Henrietta, definitely, but there's a pretty substantial subplot going on, too, and that involves Stanley. He is... Um, he is a neighborhood boy, um, so he's probably about her age too, but he seems so much more boyish than her because Henrietta is so mature. Um, so he he's known her for many years, and he thinks of himself in love with her, and also he thinks of himself as her protector. So we got a lot of father things going on here. So he grew up in the neighborhood where Henrietta did, so they've grown up from childhood, little kids together. He, he's, 
how what are Henrietta's feelings about Stanley? Can you tell, or is that you can't reveal it? Hello. I think I think off the shelf listeners. Hopefully, we can get Michelle back, but she just dropped the line. I can see here in the uh, in the studio, so I would encourage Michelle to dial back in uh, because we just lost her. Uh, she, I don't know what happened, but she did just drop the line. But one thing I've learned over the years, that is to keep keep going, uh, regardless of what happens. I don't know if something happened uh, with her phone. I don't know if her internet connection went out. Uh, after 12 years of doing this, I do know to expect that a lot of different things can happen. This one is my first, though. I haven't lost a guest after the show started before, so I'm just going to wait to see if she tunes back in. But in the in the interim, we are had the pleasure. We've had more than 35 minutes this morning with Michelle Cox, and she hopefully she will dial back in. But she is the author of the book A Girl Like You, which uh, I encourage you to go to her website, and her website is michellecoxauthor.com and that's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-C-O-X-A-U-T-H-O-R.com I'm going to send her a quick email and just say I think you dropped uh, could you dial back in if you have any questions uh, for Michelle uh, you can post them in our chat room or you could dial in to the show and ask the questions on the line uh, let me just send her a quick email. Please dial back in. You dropped the line. Um, um, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to type and keep talking, so I don't have silence on the air. If you ever do radio or television or whatever you do uh, in life, I can tell you, you better be flexible uh, because you don't know what's coming. And I think I think I might have just gotten her back. Let's see. Hi, Michelle. Is that you? Yes. Hi. I just completely lost power. I, know. I, I, I said, you know what? I did. One thing I was telling our listeners: I've learned to be flexible over the years, and I just keep <laughs> the show going. I don't care what happens. I don't get stressed. That was a first, <laughs> though. But uh, just keep just keep the just keep the show going. So we were asking about Stanley. Um, what are Henrietta's feelings for Stanley? I don't want you to give the story away. You certainly, you already landed that hook, whether you you realize it or not. But the, the story <laughs> sounds layered and complicated enough to keep the reader turning the pages, but not too many characters. But the, so Stanley, he's he grew up with Henrietta. They grew up uh, in the same neighborhood from, from kids, so they've known each other for years. Of course, Henrietta and Clive are just meeting, but. Um, Stanley, you said, sees himself as Henrietta's protector, and he's in love with her. What are Henrietta's feelings for Stanley? She is completely um, oblivious to him. You know, he's like an annoying little pest. So really? she, uh, yeah, she, she likes him as you know a, a neighbor or a friend, but she, um, she has no interest in him romantically. And to complicate it, her younger sister is actually the one that's in love with Stanley. 
Wow. So you kind of have a little love triangle going there. And so Henrietta is always trying to get Stanley to be more interested in her sister Elsie than herself. So he plays a pretty big, um, you know, he plays a big role in in rolling the plot along. Now, we know Henrietta's based on a real-life character that you met when you were doing social work. Uh, are Clive and Stanley and any of the other characters in A Girl Like You, are any of them based on actual people? And also I wanted to ask you this, because I know, uh, I think it's um, Stephen King's done this before, where some writers will see something in the news, and they won't, like, mimic the story, but they'll use different threads from it to create a novel. So, again, Henrietta's based in part on a real-life character that you met, are Clive and Stanley or any of the other characters in A Girl Like You based on actual people? Uh, good question. Actually, Stanley is an amalgamation. So um, the woman in the nursing home used to tell me that um, because she had all these bizarre jobs, all these late-night jobs, and she was getting home late on the L or the trolley, um, there was a little neighborhood gang of boys that knew she was a, quote, nice girl. And so they waited for her to get off from her jobs, and they would follow her at a distance. She always knew they were there. And they would follow her until she made it home safely. And I just thought that was such a charming detail. Yeah, and I thought, you know, I can't write this whole gang into the story. That's too many characters, but I'll, I'll make them all into one. So that's how Stanley so that's came Stanley. about. <laughs> oh that's my goodness. Stanley. He's the neighborhood gang. This is the joy of interviewing authors. You get you get snippets on a story that you wouldn't get if you didn't yeah. listen in to, to, to your to the interviews. Now your writing flows so easily, uh uh, Michelle. Is that a product of your college training English lit major, or does that come naturally to you? You know, I, I I hesitate to say, but really, I think it's just natural because, um, I mean, unless you're getting a, a degree in maybe creative writing, which I don't know anything about, um, you're really not writing very very creatively in in college. Just getting a, a lit degree, you know, you're writing a lot of essays, but you're not. It's not a d- different type of writing. So I I kind of feel like it was honed from reading so much you know wasn't it was it Stephen King or John Steinbeck that said you know for every word you write you have to read 10,000 so um I wow. do think yeah that that really uh helped me be the reader or writer that I am today how did you manage, because this is something that a lot of writers struggle with, and I, when I write novels, like I'm working on a novel now, and I tell myself, just put that, put the critic down, just put it to rest, mm. and get the story story written, because that is so difficult sometimes, and I know some writers tell me they edit even as they're writing the first draft, which, no, 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 get the, just get the story down, because when you edit as you're writing that first draft, you lose so much of the story, I think. How do you manage to keep that inner critic at bay, Michelle, while you're creating the first draft of a story? Um, that's a good question. I, I try to really have, you know, a pretty solid outline before I go into it. And then I 
I start writing and I I tell myself, you know, that I it, it, I'm not going to edit or I'm not going to let anybody else read it until I get it all the way finished, and then it can be you can go back and you know see it as a whole and make changes and stuff like that. I think if you if you're writing because you like what you're writing, it's easier to keep that critic at bay because you're not worried about what anybody else is going to think or whatever. You're just writing for you. Mhm. Mhm. Now, did you research the 1930s? Uh, did you? We had an author on actually from California, and she talked. She really taught me a lot about California. She lives on a farm, and mm-hmm. she, she looks nothing her age. Her and her daughter look the same age, but she 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 wrote a story like I think in the late 1800s in California. She loves California, and the research. And they say readers know. You always find a reader who knows the history to the nth detail. So you really—that's—that's that's a challenge with setting a story in a time period that's gone by. So did you research the 1930s? How much research did you do in Chicago and the country as a whole before you sat down and started writing a girl like you? Um, I did some. I will have to admit, I didn't do a ton. I, I did write a different novel before this one, and I, I did put a lot more. That one was set in the 40s, um, and I did do a lot more research for that one, but it was also kind of set on the northwest side of Chicago, so a lot of it could carry over. Um, and I, I feel silly, you know, saying this, but a lot of what I, I needed to get, I could just pretty easily look up on Google. Yeah. So to me, yeah. it, it wasn't necessarily this um, quest to um, recreate, you know, all of the events and everything in the 30s. It was really more to tell this story and then, you know, with that flavor to it. And I went into it feeling like I, you know, didn't put a ton of research into it, although I think a lot of what I've heard over the years from all of those Nursing home residents has, you know, stuck with me, plus my own family mm-hmm. stories. It always has stayed in my head, and so it's easy to call up a few details. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what really resonates with readers, is they, they don't necessarily want to read a, a big, long paragraph about what the landscape looked like. I mean, you can just, you know, pepper it with, you know, some authentic details and then leave it at that, because I think, you know, that allows the reader to sort of imagine as well. So it it seems like it's worked for my readers. They really, you know, um, like I said earlier, it really feel like they're there. They really feel like they they're um, back in that world. So hopefully, I I did a, a good enough job with the research. <laughs> did the the real the woman who from the nursing home who Henrietta, the real life woman who the story is based on, uh, did she get to read a girl like you? And what does she think if she did? <laughs> You no, know, because you know, I think she she passed away. I'm pretty sure sometime oh, in the nineties. Okay. Yeah, so this okay. is you know way past her time, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. Why did yeah. you decide to turn a girl like you into a book series? You said the next book's coming out in April. Why did you decide to turn it into a series? Well, I think like halfway through, I thought you know, well, I I love reading series and watching series. So I 
I, I hate it when a book ends and writing a series is a way to just, you know, keep it going. And I could spend more time with the characters that way and, and develop a lot more. So, you know, you, you, all of these plot lines keep running through the the books and you can do a lot with them and you can really, you know, develop Stanley or Elsie or, um, you know, all the other characters that they encounter. There is one other character. Oh, sorry. There, I was going to say back back to your earlier question on uh, which characters are real. There is actually one more character. She's sort of a sub character, um, but she does play a pretty important role. And um, it's somebody that she meets on the case later on, and she was based on a real person um, from Henrietta's or from the real woman's life. Oh, okay. Now, I went to a writer's conference at the College of New Jersey. This is going back several years. And there was an author there who she talked about how much work and time and effort went into just designing the book's cover. We talked about your website, which is just fantastically done. Uh, And I also love your book cover. I mean, it really puts you in Chicago in 1935, just looking at it, you just instantly, immediately, it just like transports you there, the feeling, everything. Who designed your book cover, and how involved were you in that process? And I want to ask you this for our listeners as well who are authors. Do you recommend that authors uh, work with a publisher who lets them have a lot of uh, a weight or say in the cover's design? Well, thank you. Um, I was really happy with the cover, too. Um, designed by uh, Julie Metz, who is the the um, artistic uh, head at um, She Writes Press, my publisher. So um, she has, you know, actually designed some award-winning covers. So she's, she's really um, awesome at what she does. And I'm lucky enough um, when you published with She Writes Press. It's a hybrid press, so you're a, you're a partner in it. And um, you're a partner in, in all aspects of the publishing, which is fantastic. And, you know, most, a lot of authors that I talk with who are published with the big five, you know, have absolutely no say in the cover, non-zero. Um, that's not the case with She Writes. Um, you, you know, f- fill out a very big, long document for Julie, and she kind of tries to come up with what your, you know, your story is about. And so she sent me um, hundreds of stock photos and I was allowed to be a part of it and, and pick my top ones. And then um, we finally narrowed it down and then she, you know, added some design work to it. And then that was the cover. But my, my signature has to be on the, the final draft. So um, wow, I, I really do impressive. Get good for you. The last day. Yeah, yeah it was, it's really a neat concept. Because the author I was telling you about, and I've heard other authors say, they were told by the publisher, you know, they've done, the, they, they've done their marketing, they've done their research, they know just the cover to use and tell the author, we don't need your input. And she, the, the author said if there's one thing she could do over, she, wasn't, she didn't care for the cover at all. She just didn't think yeah. it... Um, it really gave the reader a glimpse 
into what the story was about. And I, you looked at the cover. I, I would have agreed with her, but she said no. They told her we've done the research. We know what cover to use. We don't need your input. So it's good that you you were able to have that input. Can you share what uh, we have nine minutes left in today's show, Michelle? Can you share three to four marketing steps that you've taken? You've seen work for you. Uh, can you share with the off-the-shelf listeners three to four marketing steps that that have been effective for you to get the word out about a girl like you? Sure. Um, well, I have, um, I, as I said earlier, I've hired a um, publicity firm to help me, and I think that, um, you know, they do a lot of the, the, the big things that I probably couldn't do on my own, so they were able to get me a a book list review and a library journal review. And um, that was huge in terms of sales um, because that uh, all the library, the the library uh, distribution company, Baker and Taylor pretty much bought up my entire first um, print run based on those two high level reviews that I don't think I could have gotten on my own. So I, you know, I'd say the first, one big step is if if you can at all do it, hire um, a publicist um, to maybe get articles placed or um, get get some higher visibility. Um, second, I think um, having a blog is really helpful. Um, it was something I was really resistant to, but I started the blog about um, you know the forgotten residents of Chicago. And I think that that uh, pulls in a readership that is similar to somebody who would want to read this type of a book. So that that's uh, two, three, I would say. The, our publisher is always talking about getting content out there constantly. And so anywhere, there's so many places that are accepting content, content or guest blogging or, you know, articles, um, I really think that's that's effective, and I think doing interviews or podcasts like this is, you know, um, just phenomenal. I really think you can reach a completely different um, audience than than you normally do. Now, you know, for our off the shelf listeners, um, publicists can be expensive. Do you have any insight for our 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 listeners who want to they want to walk in your footsteps? As far as we know, choosing book publishers, you got to be careful whether you self-publish or go uh, with a traditional publisher. So you don't. There, there are people who run scams and ripoffs too. So you have to be careful. You you never want to pay for a reading fee. I share that with our listeners. You, you don't want to mm-hmm. pay a fee to a literary agency just to critique your novel to see if they want to want to use it. Those are things you want to look out for. But but as a as it comes to hiring a publicist. You can spend a lot of money on a publicist. Um, mm-hmm. Are there any Are there any things you would share with listeners to look out for and be careful for, or signs of a good of a good publicist? Um, yeah, that's it's hard, you know, because it's almost like you're you're hiring, you know, a contractor to you know do a room on your house. You don't really know. Uh, what to you know base base the decision on? So um, I guess I would say maybe ask for um, a list of their current clients and kind of look them up on social media and just kind of see what you know 
what they're doing and how effective the publicist has been for them. And then I would also um, ask for a list of references, which I did, and um, um, called all of called all of the references, and you know, kind of found out the nitty gritty, or tried to anyway. And then also, I mean, just if you can see if you can get them to commit to a list or a strategy of, and they're not going to give all their secrets away, but you know exactly what they're going to produce for you, or at least what they're going to try for, instead of it just being sort of a vague, um, you know sort of a vague thing. See if you can get them to list concrete things that they, they are planning to do for you. Now, what have readers been saying about a girl like you? What have you been, some of the feedback you've been getting from readers? I think that the um, the, the the response has been really overwhelming. I mean, that's kind of embarrassing to say, but really People are dying for the next book. Um, I try to end every book on a sort of a cliffhanger. I'm currently writing the fourth one, so we have wow, uh, you know, a few to come out yet. Um, but everybody really loves Henrietta. Um, it actually won. It's a mystery, but it actually won um, as a finalist at the Next Gen Awards in Romance. So it's really kind of a congratulations, congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. So it 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 kind of it's both really. It it is a romance and it is a mystery. It is historical fiction, so a lot, it appeals to a lot of people. Um, most people, the number one thing they say to me is they they feel like it's a movie. Ah, okay. Maybe that's your next step. That may be your, that may be your next step. Um, where can off the shelf listeners get a copy of a girl like you and is it in print and ebook form, mm-hmm. audio, what forms is it available in and where can they get a copy of a girl like you? Uh it's an ebook and it's a um paperback. You can get it on, you know, um in bookstores, you could get it in the library, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indiebound, Kobo, any any place really. It's it's available. Now, do you have any upcoming speaking engagements, Michelle? And if so, could you share some of the speaking engagements or the public appearances that you're going to be make, making to share a girl like you at? Um, well, I I went on a, a pretty big summer tour with um, She Writes, so I had um, – that was fun because I got to be in some bookstores that I probably couldn't get on my own, so I was in L.A. and – Seattle, um, Chicago, Boston. Um, I did a couple of um, dates in um, Iowa, some in Michigan. So I've I've done a lot already. Um, I do have like I'm going to be at the Chicago Book Expo. I'm going to be on a panel speaking of um, okay. about mystery. Yeah, so that'll be fun. That's coming up in November, and then I have some. Um, events in January and February, and by then it'll be time, you know, to start promoting the next book. Look at you. I'm so happy for you, Michelle Cox. Thank you. Can you tell us before we go, where are you on social media? Where can off-the-shelf listeners connect with you on social media? Um, I'm at, on Twitter at Michelle Cox 33 I'm on um 
I have an author Facebook page. You can connect on to all of these uh, via the website. Oh, okay, so okay, and I'm going to give you and to give you guys, we have been treated this morning. I, I really encourage you because I'm telling you, I had a. There are very few websites that just wow me right away. Her book cover, her website. Go over there and see if you don't have the same impact. It doesn't have the same impact on you. And our website is Michelle Cox Author dot com. M I C H E L L E C O X. A U T H O R dot com, Michelle Cox, author dot com. She is the author of the book, A Girl Like You, and she's also a blogger. And two of her blogs, and we didn't have time to get around to them, was how to get <laughs> your book published in 7,000 East Tips. I had them in my research questions, but I almost never get around to all the questions. And novel notes <laughs> of local lore, but you could Google them to check her out and then go to her website again, Michelle Cox, author dot com. We have just been what a what a treat Michelle has been. And I encourage you, a girl like you said in nineteen thirty five, get to know Henrietta and Clive and Stanley and the other host of characters and a girl like you. So I want to encourage all of you uh to come back next Saturday, eleven AM Eastern Standard Time, New York City time. Set just set yourself a reminder. You can set yourself a reminder and your smartphone or write it on your calendar Saturday mornings, 11 a.m., that you're going to connect to off the shelf, whether you dial in, go into the chat room, iTunes, however you connect to off the shelf. Rainbow Soul, we encourage you uh, uh, to tune in to off the shelf and tell book lovers everywhere because you don't know, we have had some phenomenal guests on, and if you don't tune in, you're going to miss some. So I encourage you, again, Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time, just be here at Off the Shelf Radio. Michelle, we thank you again. Oh, my goodness, what a treat you were. And I wish you the absolute oh. phenomenal best. I hope I turn <laughs> on the TV one day and say, oh, I interviewed her. I interviewed her. <laughs> so I, I wish you the, the very, very best. As I always tell all of our listeners, you're amazing. You're awesome. You're incredible. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here, 11 o'clock next Saturday. Bye for now. Michelle, I'll shoot you an email. Bye. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.